Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Dr. Todd Frederick, an associate professor of family medicine at the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine at Ohio University. We talk about the pluses and minuses of reopening the country at this time. Dr. Frederick is a physician who's deeply knowledgeable about outbreaks such as the COVID-19 pandemic and he's committed also to veterans' health issues. He's one of the founders of Media and Medicine, which assists students and professionals with science and health-related communications. Dr. Fredericks, uh, we're approaching a week when several states are talking about reopening, some more than others, some slower than others. Why can't they just do it all at once? This is a discussion I've had with many people over the last week or two uh, because I spent a lot of time talking about this uh, in West Virginia on the military side. And the fact of the matter is, is someone, I'll just give you by way of illustration, someone gave me a question. says, well, Sweden didn't lock down anything. Why can't we be Sweden? And I said, well, it's problematic to compare a country of 10 million people where 81% of the people are the same basic genetics, they're all Swedes, with a country of 320 million people, with 54 state governments and territory governments, uh, and a lot of different demographics. And, and, and demographics that include major mass urban centers like New York with, with 10 million people in the, in the greater New York area, Los Angeles with more you, one size doesn't fit all in the United States. That's why we have a federalist system. And uh, when the federal system is healthy, it works really well. So in some parts of the country, it's reasonable to open up a lot of things. In other parts of the country, it's you've got to be very cautious about it. Um, and there's also what I call uh, the people factor. And I like to say to medical students, people are going to do what people are going to do. We know pretty clearly that there's about 50% compliance when a doctor tells a patient what to do with a prescription or a therapy. Even in the best cases, we might get up to 80%. We're never 100%. And so the piece of educating the people that what you asked about, the so what for mom and pop, is really, really important. It's trying to explain about how you, you keep each other safe as you open up that restaurant or as you open up that hair salon or as you open up the dog groomers, places where people spend a lot of time sometimes in close contact. Does that, does that help? Yeah. Uh, so what considerations should be, say, the top three 
considerations a governor should have or a mayor should have in whether to reopen or how soon to reopen? So if I were the one, and I'm not, I merely recommend, I do advise a lot of people, but I, I, I recommend. I'm not the guy making the decision. That's the other thing I want to just talk about real quick. One of the most unhealthy things a person can do, and unfortunately, it's how we get lots of our information today, is watch social media because everybody seems to be an epidemiologist or a constitutional scholar or somebody who is just brilliant about what they do. And most of them, if not all of them, have uh, no involvement in planning or making major decisions. It's really easy to sit in your living room and say, yeah, just do this. But we know that there is something between 40 and 50,000 people are no longer with us, Americans, beyond flu because of this disease. And so that weighs heavily on people. But if I was going to tell anybody, I'd say, number one, you have to look at density of people and spacing. If, if for instance, I'll use Georgia. Georgia, some of Georgia's guidelines right now are they want no more than 10 people in 500 square feet. And wh- what that means is they don't want 10 unfamiliar people. And I'm, you know, familiar being I'm in the same family. We spend every day together. We've basically been quarantined together. So we probably share roughly the same germs. We don't want 10 unique people in a space smaller than 500 square feet. And that has to do with what we know, which is actually not a lot about how this disease spreads. So for the restaurateur, can you get and maintain a a separation of people within 500 square feet that allows you to have 10 people in there? That's not easy for a lot of restaurants. So that's the first thing is spacing is important. The second thing is, is there's a lot of talk in the last week about masks don't do any good. This is another social media myth that drives me crazy because we do have papers that show and papers that go back 10 years that show that even the simplest of personal protective equipment, uh, the the fabric mask, the double layer fabric mask made out of dense t-shirt material, if two people are wearing them, they do provide a level of protection for both uh, for someone who isn't aware that they're infected. So continuing the reverse isolation, making sure we really hit the public messaging and say, look, we need about 60 or so percent or 70 percent of the population to be wearing these masks at any one time to slow the rate of spread down. Ideally, it'd be 100 percent, but sometimes that's impossible. And then the third thing is understanding that this disease uh, does well, really well in closed confines with air that doesn't change well. So if I box a bunch of people up into a small room in a hospital and a couple of them have SARS-CoV-2 and they're actively shedding virus, that's a different situation than, say, a public beach where you have a breeze blowing all the time and where people are maintaining social distancing. And so really educating people to say, look, much as we did in Ohio, by the way, where it's okay to go out and exercise. There's states, I I can't believe it, Thomas, there's states that say you can't go out and exercise, that they're fining people for being out of their home. Um, And again, I'm not going to call out anybody. I, I think one of the I was going to talk about the the three classes of individuals that when we talk about false dichotomies, but the three classes of individuals in the SARS-CoV-2 fight here, maybe we'll get to that. But, uh, you know, Ohio is pretty prescient about that. If you're outside and there's a breeze blowing and you can maintain six, seven feet away from strangers, which isn't hard to do, especially on like the bike path at Athens or even on the golf courses, you're probably very, very safe to be out there without a mask. Just out in the sunshine, getting your vitamin D and improving your immune system and all that stuff that's really important. There seems to be, and and I I don't know how to put this exactly, sort of two camps. If we open up, we're going to have 
a resurgence. And the other camp is we've got to open up or we're, uh, our economy is going to go to hell more than it al- already has. Can you blend those two together as a physician and a policymaker and somebody who studies this? Can you put those two together so that they aren't at odds with each other? Well, Thomas, I, you segue beautifully to what I had talked about before, which is this false dichotomy. Nobody, and I don't think there's just two camps. I think there's a third camp. And I see it in some of my colleagues. I see it on social media. And the third camp is political. You have the one camp that is, if we open up, we're going to expose people and vulnerable individuals in the population are going to die. You have the other camp that says, this is all overblown. It's an infringement on civil liberties. We should have never closed in the first place, open everything up. Then you've got the third camp, which is the politic, the political chicanery and grifters who are out there that are basically using these things on every angle they can to achieve a political end, most of which is centered on uh, disrupting the current uh, political structure. And it's, it's sick. It really is sick. And it has nothing to do with a right or a left-leaning philosophy. It has to do with people who would exploit something that is really unprecedented in any of our lifetimes for personal gain or political gain. And I, I would encourage everybody to really shun those people. If you have people that are engaged in that kind of activity, whether or not it's, it's sharpshooting leadership, uh, it's, it's calling for you know, making allegations that someone's stupid or whatever it is for your political agenda, you are part of the problem. Because the average American doesn't care. The average American wants to open up their beauty salon. The average American wants to start grooming dogs again. They want to start doing what they do to, to have pride and joy in their business and take care of their families. And it doesn't help leadership or advisors to have this noise in the background of people who oftentimes have no more qualifications than my 12-year-old to be on media. Um, be, but they're, they're attractive or they say something that resonates with someone who doesn't think very deeply. And I think it's really important. Now, let's get back to the, the first two. There is a spectrum of this, Thomas. The people who say if we open everything up, we're going to kill people are right. And the people who say if we don't over open everything up, we're going to kill people. They're right. But in that spectrum, uh, from one end to the other, the absolute never open versus the absolute let's open everything, there are compromises that can be made where we take an acceptable loss rate, knowing that we will have people that will get this disease if we open up. But we are offsetting the losses economically, the social isolation. One thing we need to talk about is domestic abuse. Simply having people in homes means that all the time means that child abuse goes up, spousal abuse goes up. And these are really important public health issues that have to be looked at, you know, which is worse, the, the cure or the disease. But again, a false dichotomy that says we either have one or the other is really uh, problematic. It does vary, Thomas. It varies. My, the situation in West Virginia is a little different than the situation in New York City and how they do that kind of thing. And that has to be recognized. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I answered your question, Thomas. No, you, you, you did. Uh, and what gets me is when I hear uh, somebody like Dr. Fauci or Dr. Dr. Amy Atkin here in Ohio, the public health doctor, saying that, yes, when we open up, there will be more deaths. And then people sort of get on them as as being <laughs> doomsday 
profits, but what they're saying, if I understand it accurately, mm-hmm. is just an accurate depiction. When you expose more people, more people will die. Well, yeah, it's true. And you know, I had to remind someone today. I said, "Look, car car accident related deaths are down. Right? We make trade offs in a free society." Uh, for for liberty and personal liberty. I mean, I saw a guy the other day riding around on a motorcycle without a helmet on, and I'm gonna. I don't want to open up a can of worms with my friends who like to ride <laughs> motorcycles, including myself. But the fact of the matter is, is if you don't wear a helmet wearing a motorcycle, you are taking a risk, and that risk may be offset by your enjoyment. But I can tell you, there are people who weren't wearing helmets end up in trauma bays that say maybe it would have been a good idea if I'd have worn a helmet. A lot of this stuff is after the fact. You've had a lot of time to think about it. Would I have done it differently? Um, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Atkin. I have a, do- a lot of respect for Dr. Fauci. I have a lot of respect for government leaders who are lay people that are trying to balance their economy and the needs of their constituents uh, with, do I sentence someone to death by omission? Do I do I not put something in place and then someone pays the price that's their life? Because that, that's someone's grandma, that's someone's brother, that's someone's child, right? Um that's why I don't listen to these people who, who want to turn this into a political thing. We are going to take some risks in the next couple of weeks with a disease we do not fully understand. I, uh, Thomas, if, it, if you might indulge me, just the other day sure. I was asked by one of my bosses uh, wearing uniform to pull up, where are we at on hydroxychloroquine? Um, I've got studies starting uh, published April 15th. I've got studies April 9th. I've, these are when these trials start. The largest NIH trial with hydroxychloroquine, they released the information that that was starting on April 9th. We normally run drug trials over two to five years, and we need thousands of people to infer really good data. They're hoping in an NIH study to have 500 participants. And people are demanding answers because they have become used to being able to get just in time whatever they want. But good science and good decision-making comes with risk and time. And so we start with phase one, two, three. What is reasonable? What, what makes some sense to get things going? And then we can constantly reevaluate numbers. Are we seeing spikes? Can we do proper tracing of those contacts? It's complicated stuff, Thomas. And most people don't have to live in this world because they're not epidemiologists and they don't like data and they, they can get by with it. But the people that are now running the ship have to work on really imperfect data sometimes to make really serious decisions. Let me just uh, give an example. Uh, I assume that as we reopen and as we extend out to whatever our new normal will be, that, as you said, that has to be done in stages or phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm in the age group that needs more protection than my 30-something-year-old co-producer. Mm-hmm. So so I would be a little more reluctant to jump right back into things than perhaps he would. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, is that reasonable for us? Yeah. And as we learn more about the disease, um, we need to be thinking about what that looks like. And not just, not just now. What does it look like in the wintertime? What does it look like in the spring? How does this disease operate at various times of the year? Right. So in summer, most viruses kind of settle down a little bit because they don't like the heat. They don't like the type of humidity in various latitudes of the United States and the rest of the world, for that matter. It may be that 
older people have to demonstrate different types of precautions or people with comorbidities. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I got high blood pressure. I'm in my fifties. That immediately raises my risk substantially if I get SARS-CoV-2 for, for a bad outcome. So do we have to make a difference in terms of how we behave in October, November versus in July? These are all things that have to be studied. I, I mean, I literally got off a brief this morning where one of the things we were talking about was how do we get good feedback for best practices of, of employers? So as employers uh, try these things and, and work with their staffs, work with people about how to do good sanitation, uh, good hygiene while they're serving people or taking care of customers, what's our feedback loop so we know what best practices look like and measure that against very elaborate data collection um, from our, our civilian partners, our military expertise to look at how does that all fit together so that we can make good guidelines for people to say, based upon what we know, the lowest risk, not the zero risk, because there's no such thing, but the lowest risk will be if you follow these guidelines. And last thing I'd say about that is that's even staged based upon means. So if you have a small business owner that has five employees, that's a different situation than a business owner that has 500 employees and a large you know, reserve of cash. Are we able to design systems that allow... The small business owner to have a reasonable certainty that they can, with minimal cost and overhead, apply these measures that help protect their their uh, customers. But it looks different than that five hundred employer or five hundred employee employer that's doing the same thing and say their supply warehouse. For instance, Amazon uses thermal tracking uh, in their in their warehouses right now to ensure adequate social distancing so that people can still get their Amazon orders. They're separating their pot, their, their workers by using thermal cameras in their, in their factories. So they're watching these hotspots as they get too close, they have a way of notifying people, Hey, space yourself out more. These are not simple or trivial things. In fact, these are NASA level, let's go to the moon type engineering problems. They really are. Are we expecting that we'll have social distancing for until we get a vaccine? Are, are, are uh, places like Amazon going to have to have these thermal cameras until we get a vaccine? You know, is this something that's going to be expected long term as opposed to short term? Well, I tell my lawyer friends that lawyers and doctors aren't that different. Maybe. That's our favorite word. Maybe. Possibly. <laughs> we can't we can't deal in absolutes and, and not only that, but does the does Amazon's fulfillment center I, I I'm using a company, I don't mean yes. that I I like Amazon, lots of people do, right? I mean I get good stuff out of Amazon. I, it's nothing against them. Is Amazon's solution for say a fulfillment center in Salt Lake City different than Amazon's solution for a fulfillment center in New York City? I don't know. It may be. Our best practice is going to develop, for instance, we get in this discussion about martial law. And I have to explain to people, I've been in the Army now for almost 30 years. I have been in countries that have martial law. What you're seeing is not martial law, okay? The fact that I'm being asked to wear a mask out of deference to my fellow citizens is not an infringement on my civil liberties, okay? It's, it's a good neighbor policy because if I'm that young asymptomatic, or the middle-aged, I'm not young anymore, but if I'm that asymptomatic shedder and I walk next to that 80-year-old who's trying to get their groceries at Kroger and I cough inadvertently, is it the, is it the kind thing? Is it the, the charitable thing to infringe upon my, my right to expose my face for the sake of that, person, that, that individual who may be someone's grandmother, mother, or somebody important to them? I, I don't think so. And so we will develop those standards and guidelines. And I think 
a lot of it comes from inference. What makes sense based upon what we know? We know that hand hygiene is critical. We, we know that for everything else we do. We know that there's probably an association with footborne traffic out of hospitals or into nursing homes, that people should probably not use the same shoes in certain work environments that they use at home, that they should take a separate pair of shoes to work only in that environment. We know that there's probably going to be a more elaborate decontamination methods in restaurants than there would be, say, at, um, oh, I don't know, a grain distribution facility. Um, because we know about foodborne transmission of COVID versus airborne transmission of COVID. So, I, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to see this stuff, but I think what you're going to be interested in is in the next month, as states do open up, believe me, what will happen is if there is an outbreak or a sentinel case someplace that, that is now open that wasn't open in the last two months or a month and a half, people will know about that on the news. It'll get all over social media. And we'll very quickly learn through contact tracing, through epidemiological studies, why that didn't go right. And we'll tweak our methodology, right? We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I want to address as we talk about resurgence and reopening and everything, I, I want to address some things that I think may be misunderstood. I, I think that a lot of people, just mom and pop at home, think that because we've had these so-called lockdowns or you know, community isolation or state isolation or social distancing, that when that the virus has gone away, and you look at the numbers, they're flattening out, they're going down. Mm -hmm. That's not true, is it? Oh, no. The number of cases, we are seeing a great increase in doubling rate, or a great decrease in doubling time. It's an increase in doubling times, which means that it takes longer for the number of cases to double, okay? So that's a good thing. We want we want 100 days before we have a doubling of cases. We want, we'd love to have it where it was zero days, that there was no doubling. That it was just what we call an R naught of one, that one infected person will infect an average of one person. Or better yet, an R naught of less than one, which means that, you know, for every infected person, you know, a fraction of people, it takes one infected person to get, you know, or it takes 10 infected people in the population to get one person infected. So we are seeing that flattening. We are seeing the what are the estimated peaks dropping off. But what's funny is I see in social media, oh, this is all contrived. Well, I love I'm going to I'm going to plug the New Atlantis. They've done some great graphics, but the New Atlantis Journal 
people can look at it, thenewatlantis.com. They show how the weekly death rates of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, basically are now at or above the weekly death rates from heart disease in this country. You know, we have surpassed the probably, uh, the CDC has a hard time tracking the flu numbers, but basically in a matter of under two months, we have surpassed the total death rate of influenza that takes, that we're at five months into the season. In a matter of two months with this disease, we've surpassed the total number of Americans died from COVID-19 that have died from influenza. So these are serious things. And, um, you know, people need to understand that it is because of what we've done most likely, I remember we, it's always a maybe with a doctor, it, it's because of what we've done that has seen that peak ex, you know, pass, that has seen the flattening, that has seen the doubling rate increase, that has seen those things. Now what we've got to figure out is, well, how much is too much? And that's what the next couple of weeks are all about. And it's not going to be how much is too much for the country. It's going to be how much is too much for New York? How much is too much for West Virginia? How much is too much for Georgia and California and Utah? Each one has a different set of circumstances. I saw a term in the New York Times this morning for the first time, and in the medical field, you may deal with this term a lot, but it's quarantine fatigue. Yeah, It said Americans are suffering quarantine fatigue. That term bothers me in the sense that it seems like we we don't have the wherewithal or the will to <laughs> see something through. We go for a time and either get bored or tired of it and then want to explode and open up everything and, and, and go out and have life at, as normal. Some of these terms must be bothersome to you as a physician as well. Oh, there's a lot of bothersome terms to me. Uh, the term healthcare is bothersome to me because um, hospitals don't generally do healthcare, they do sick care. And we conflate all of things that happen in medicine with the term healthcare. Um, if we do healthcare really well, what healthcare generally is, is public health. What, you know, it's the sanitarians that make sure we can go out to eat in our restaurants and not get food poisoning. It's, it's the water systems that are taken care of so people don't die of cholera in this country. That's healthcare. And I'm an osteopathic physician, which means that I believe that we're, uh, uh, our bodies are inherently capable of self-maintenance and, and looking after themselves. And they just need to be pushed a little bit sometimes when they get out of line. And if we push a little bit frequently, not a lot, but frequently, uh, frequently a little bit, then we avoid the sick care piece, which is someone dying from ARDS in the, in the ICU where they need a full court press. So there's a lot of terms in, in medicine that bother me. Um, but I, I don't know, quarantine fatigue, it's all relative, right? I mean, I work in a locked psychiatric hospital. I have a patient population that's extremely vulnerable. And I don't ever want to be I don't want to be case zero. I don't want to be that doctor that brought in SARS-CoV-2 and gave it to one of those patients uh, because I wasn't taking precautions. And so my life looks a lot different than most people's. I, I live on the dirty side and I work on the clean side. So I have three sets of shoes. I have to wear three different sets of shoes. And I've been doing this for months, by the way, because I understand infection control. I've been wearing three different sets of shoes to get to work every day. So I am minimizing the risk of me being the one that contaminates the system and possibly puts one of my patients or our patients at risk. So uh, it is probably true in New York City, if you are locked down or, or Michigan, 
my goodness, people are apparently from the, the governor won't allow people to go to their vacation homes on the western shore of Michigan or get out of town, which to me seems like a rational thing to do, to reduce the density in the cities and get out to other places. And I, I understand the logic that you don't want to move people that in highly infected areas to lower infected areas, but but I can imagine people who are living in high rises in Manhattan are probably really tired of not being able to get out and walk and go to Roosevelt Park and all the things they're used to doing. Um, but, you know, I guess it varies, Thomas. I, quarantine fatigue. Uh, I don't know. Is there quarantine fatigue for an 85-year-old with diabetes that's really worried? You know, a, a, a widow or a widower who's by themselves that maybe has a family far away that doesn't know what they're going to do if they get sick or who they can count on to help them? We're pretty lucky in Southeast Ohio. We have a lot of folks that really look out after other people. But there are a lot of parts of this country. I, you know, I left California. I grew up in California. It was the land of fences. No one's, na- no one's a friend of their neighbors in California. That's a generalization. But basically, you don't know your neighbors, right? You stay in your house right. and you hide behind your fence. There's parts of this country where, yeah, I can imagine it's very, very difficult. In this part of the country, I can go out on my patio and have eight feet of space between myself and my mother-in-law and not worry about getting her sick. But there's a lot of parts of the country where they probably are pretty exhausted, Thomas. I, I just, you have to, and, and not to mention the high impact areas of the country like New York, where the healthcare providers are thrashed, and they're going to end up with problems with mental behavioral health issues and and uh, you know just absolute fatigue. And yeah, it, it, we have a big country. We have 320 million people in this country, or 330, I guess almost. So does it work in some places? Yeah, it probably is a- accurate. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, knowing your military background and the fact that the, you've been in it for well over 30 years and, and uh, practice uh, in it as, as well as you know, serve in it, is there anything from the way the military has handled this that is applicable to the civilian population? Uh, or do you think the military is not handled this well? Again, it's a it's a it's a dichotomy, right? So I, I, I'm not going to get into a dichotomy, and I want to make sure that people understand listening that I don't speak for the Department of Defense, any of its agencies, State of West Virginia, State of Ohio, or any of their agencies. Okay, totally, totally. Okay. Do I think it varies? Yes. Okay. The American people have three different militaries. They have the active military, which has some role in this, but not a lot because the provisions we have as a country that doesn't allow a lot of latitude for the active military to operate in the country for good reasons. Historically, we have the army reserve or the, excuse me, the reserves, which again are constrained by federal statute. And so they have a difficult time sometimes getting involved and how do they do that? Not to mention the fact that this is a medical fight. So a lot of the physicians that are in those organizations are already employed in their own communities taking care of patients. And so they can't be mobilized to do this, right? Right. Uh, without a trip uh, for a nationwide impact. And then you have the National Guard. So the National Guard has a big role in this. And the National Guard um, is also constrained by their providers and practitioners uh, and their availability. I have several doctors that work for me that can't leave. They can't come on to active duty because they are busy with their own patient populations in the communities they live in as civilians. But it also varies among each of the National Guards. And so I'll speak uh, deferentially to my own, West Virginia, which I think has had a very, very good response, given our very small number of people, for state population only is 1.8 million people. But our approach has been largely that of innovative logistics. How do we interface with our civilian agencies and counterparts to support their efforts? And to that end, Thomas, 
I have a lot of, um, and, and it's not without fits and starts, by the way, we also have learning curves. Fortunately, a lot of us have studied pandemic disease and infectious disease throughout our military careers, so we weren't completely naive about what was going on, but uh, mileage can vary. Um, I, I wouldn't speculate about Ohio because I don't work with the Ohio Guard. I have good friends there. In fact, the, the senior ranking official of the Ohio Guard, did, um, uh, General Harris, he and I served in Kosovo together, and I have a high regard for him as an individual. So whatever they're doing in Ohio and the Ohio Guard is different than West Virginia, and they have different set of problems and constraints they have to deal with. Like the prisons. Think about the prisons. They had the huge problem with the prisons, right? And right. they had to deal with that. We did not in West Virginia have that problem. So we have a different problem set to deal with. So given that we have all of these varied ways of handling things across the country and various needs that are different from New York to Ohio to Iowa to California, as we look at reopening the country step-by-step, state-by-state, as a, as a physician, what keeps you up at night about all of this? What, what do you worry most about as we're approaching this next phase? Well, uh, Thomas, I don't want to sound callous about this or, or indifferent, but you know, I'm a Christian man. I, my, my life and my days are numbered by my Lord. And, and so my job is to live the best I can every day, take care of people I can, try to be impartial with everybody I meet, be very thoughtful about the things I say and the things I assert. Um, and I've also been the recipient of an Iranian IED. And so I, I, if you talk about what really scares me at night, it isn't this because it is what it is. It's an infectious disease. I can't control all of it. I can just do the best I can to help give the best guidance I can, because there will be people that pass away from this as they've already had, and we will see more of them. How do, so when you ask the, the term stay up at night, and I don't mean to take it so literally, but I, literally I sleep very soundly at night because my fate is resolved in my mind. Um, I've survived combat multiple times. So, uh, but what does concern me is that people um, fall into that dichotomy. It's either all or none. That people blame the wrong sources. Case in point, the federal government has a few roles and responsibilities in this, but we live in a federalist system. We have state governments, we have local governments, and we have that because we built it as a country so that we would have more control by the people at levels of government. And so what I, what I worry about is that people look for an easy answer instead of looking in their own backyard and realizing, what are you doing every day to make a difference? You know, it, it is the state governments, it is the, it is the local hospitals that bear the responsibility for doing civil defense in their own states. Our states operate as effect, effectively little countries of themselves. With, a, with some federal intervention, but, but you know, FEMA can't just walk into Ohio without the governor asking them to. You, know, you can't mobilize federal troops into the state of Ohio without the governor asking for help. The, the president doesn't have that authority. So what, I, what keeps me up at night is that people listen to political um, grifters and, and political opportunists who deceive them about how their country really runs, and that the real focus of concern or change is taken away from local and state levels, which is where it should be. We're given a lot of latitude for that. The 10th Amendment of the United States does that. And so 
if we don't learn from that, if we don't take our responsibility as each state and even regions in the state of Ohio, for instance, I mean, Toledo and Columbus and, and Cleveland have a different set of problems than Athens does. I mean, Athens doesn't have any students in it right now. What happens in the fall when the students show up? They come from all over the country and all over the world. Are we thinking locally about how we're going to educate those people for the very real need of their education? They need to come to OU. OU needs to work, right? Are we starting the process of thinking, and I think we are, because it's not my lane, but I work for someone who is their lane at OU. You know, are we thinking about how do we educate those students so they say, hey, look, while you're coming in, do we have two weeks of quarantine before they show up at OU or when they get here? Do we, how do we do that? I don't know. Those are the kind of things that keep me up at night because our little hospital, Oblenis, doesn't have the capacity to absorb 30 SARS-CoV uh, ventilator cases. It, it doesn't have it. So how do we protect our community and our unique need? Um, and this goes to the public health commissioner, Dr. Gaskell, great guy. This goes to lots of people who are trying to think about my issue. What can I do in my backyard to make a difference? And for me, what that really looks like is I'm going to do everything I can with personal protective equipment, cloth masks, so that when I go to the grocery, I don't expose my neighbor. So when I go to work, I don't expose those patients. I, I minimize my travel. I don't I'll just say one last thing, and I don't mean to be too passionate about this, Thomas, but guess what? In crisis, panic breeds panic, calm breeds calm. And the last thing I need is to add to the noise. There's a lot of lay people out there that are just trying to get by, and they don't have a sophisticated level of medical information, and they can be easily pushed in a direction because of noise. And the, the last thing leaders need is a lot of noise. They need sound, good guidance with honesty. If I cannot say with absolute certainty what are my bosses, this is how it is, I say it's probable. I'm inferring based upon best practices. Objectivity is critical among all advisors to be able to tell their leaders who have a lot of concerns. I mean, Governor DeWine also has to make sure the state highways of Ohio are funded, right? And in the Congress, they have to do these right. things too. Making sure that we as leaders on our levels and advisors are being objective and giving best ideas and, and telling our folks, hey, look, we don't know all the answers here. And you could say that safely, but we're working towards it. And this is what we do know. And this is what we don't know. And here's the things we think we don't know. And then, of course, there's always the unknown unknowns, right? That's what right. keeps me up at night, I guess, if anything. But I, I sleep soundly, Thomas. I really do. I, I, I've, I've, I've had a good life and I have a lot of good friends and I have a good family and I have people that love me. And, and so that, that puts me at rest, you know? Well, Dr. Fredericks, thank you so much for helping us cut through the noise, however, uh, and and have a real honest discussion about where we are and, and where we're going. We really appreciate it. I hope that helps, Thomas, and I wish you the best of luck with your, with your work, okay? Today, we've been talking with Dr. Todd Frederick, a physician and associate professor of family medicine at Ohio University about a possible resurgence of the COVID-19 virus. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. 
If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.